This is CliffCentral.com. Welcome to the Understanding Cancer podcast, a series of key conversations that bring together all you need to know about cancer, empowering you with information and knowledge. This 10 podcast series is brought to you by Discovery. My name is Sonia Booth. Each week we chat to some of the country's foremost experts in the fields of health and wellness for cancer prevention, as well as in cancer treatment. We are bringing you fascinating insights relevant to every person out there. To kick off the series, our first episode unpacks the seminal question, what is cancer? Today, I am in conversation with Professor Amanda Krauss, a medical geneticist who heads the Division of Human Genetics at the National Health Laboratory Service and Wirtz University. Also with us in studio are medical oncologists Dr. Kiyo Tabani and Dr. Devin Mudli. Welcome. I would like to start with a very simple but very complex question. What is cancer and what causes it? Well, if you like, I could kick off easily there. In your body, you have cells, and these cells grow normally, and you are theoretically a healthy person. When you have a cancer, which is an abnormal signal somewhere within the genetics of that cell, the brain of that cell, what happens is that cell grows and proliferates, and in some respects is bigger and stronger and a bully in its environment. So what happens is it grows, it gets bigger, and ultimately it forms a lump. And that lump is the start of that malignancy, and that's what is cancer. So it does not die when it should die. It grows stronger and in some respects healthier than its peers, and it outstrips its blood supply, and it basically takes all it needs from the body. And that is the process that ultimately results in cancer. And that's when you detect a lump. For example, a lump in the breast. That's how it presents. Or a, a lump on the lung. Okay? So that's how the cancer process ultimately gives you this problem. In agreement with, with Devin, so cells have a normal cell cycle where normal cells uh, replicate and then die to make way for new cells. And at the heart of the problem is that the cells don't die as they should. And also they attain properties that make them more invasive, as it were, gives them properties to not die and to spread um, if unchecked or untreated um, to other parts of the body away from where they initially um, started. Please explain the difference between benign versus malignant tumors. So the difference between benign and malignant or cancerous is that benign growths do not tend to invade. So they don't, they can grow big, they can cause symptoms of pain and discomfort, but they tend not to invade and go to distant sites. And often in terms of their management as well, often benign growths sometimes don't need, um, you know, aggressive management. Sometimes just taking them um, off and exercising them most of the time, that's good enough for the benign growth. Whereas with the cancerous growth, you need a a combination of, of things like excision, if applicable, um, chemotherapy, if, if required, radiation, etc. So malignant and cancerous is used interchangeably. 
Okay. Um, so, and so what we've discussed about uh, benign not invading and malignant invading uh, is, is the same because cancerous and malignant are much the same. It's you, you use those words interchangeably. Okay. And it, it must be very easy to confuse the two though. I mean, a, a yes. fifth grader like me, no? Yes, because one would think that both are tumors. Which they are. Tumor just means an abnormal growth, but the differences are, are, are what we've described. When there is a growth, usually the best way to decide if that growth benign or malignant is to take a piece. We do a biopsy and then the pathologists come back to us and say, listen, this is a malignant growth or a benign tumor. Okay, so for the most part, if you worried about anything, the best way to get to the answer is we we call it in the business tissue is the issue, right? So you have to do a biopsy, and the biopsy will be able to usually differentiate between a benign and a malignant growth. And then the treatment can be appropriately directed. Now that we have that distinction, what are the various ways in which one can diagnose a tumor? So as Devin has said, one, the key thing is to biopsy and actually get the tissue. That really is the diagnosis because the other things are, are suggestive tests. So if you find the lump, you will suspect or be concerned that there might be a malignant tumor. But at the end, you need to take the tissue, send it to the lab and make the diagnosis. The other tests surrounding that are staging tests to say now that you've made a diagnosis of a cancer, what is the stage of the cancer? And so scans and all those tests come around an already defined cancer to stage it to see how far it has gone. Is it only in the organ where it's been found or is it somewhere else? But the diagnosis really is is a tissue diagnosis. The important fact is that in the good old days, we used to make a diagnosis and then when it came back, we could see it from tests and we would say, listen, this is the same cancer and we would treat it as if it's in the same cancer. Today, we are finding more and more that when disease comes back, which it often does in our line of work, we re-biopsy. We re-biopsy for many reasons. Number one, to confirm it's the same disease. Number two, to check that it hasn't altered or what we call mutated. Because sometimes when it does that, it then becomes a candidate for different treatments. Okay, And therefore, these days, we often re-biopsy. So it's not because we're not sure it's not cancer, but we usually like to see, has this cancer changed in any way? And therefore, will that have treatment implications for you? And what, what are some of the myths around what causes cancer and what can prevent it? I think largely, um, you know, depending on who are you, who you are talking to. Um, for example, in rural communities, people think that cancer is a white man's disease. That is only white people or affluent people who get cancer. And, that, and we know that is not, that is not so. Um, also that things like sugar, um, sugar causing cancer, that, that, that really has not been shown to, to conclusively be so. Um, you know, uh, also again, depending on who you are talking to, if it's people in rural communities, they might feel that maybe there has been, you know, people have been bewitched and, and so forth. But another thing that I find is, is that people, most of the cancers that are diagnosed and, and maybe Prof. Krauss could come into that are sporadic. And often I find that people, uh, that the fact that there is no family history, um, patients, um, are almost 
shocked that they have been diagnosed because there is no family history of cancer. But in fact, most cancers are, are actually sporadic. They just happen in the absence of a documented um, family history. So the absence of a family history does not protect one from being diagnosed with the, with the cancer. And I mean, I've, I've, I've also heard of stories where, as, as you've mentioned, that some people, especially in the rural areas, would think that I've been bewitched or I've been cursed. Um, some people also believe that it is infectious. I've heard of stories where kids are not allowed back into school because, you know, the, the staff members or other pupils or other parents think that it is infectious. You know, there's, remember with, with most urban legends, or myths, there needs to be an element of truth for it to take hold. Mm. Right. So there are malignancies which have an infective etiology. So simply put, there are malignancies where the original first insult was an infection. Right. So, for example, the typical example here is the commonest, one of the commonest malignancies in South Africa is cervical cancer. And in cervical cancer, the, um, the human papillomavirus is a huge etiology, okay? Indeed, accounting for something in the region of almost 75, 80% of malignancies. So if you vaccinate every South African uh, at 12 years old, you could probably eradicate our huge cervical cancer burden. So there's your infective etiology. If you look at Hodgkin's lymphoma, it also has a big Epstein-Barr virus etiological pathway. So that means that at some point you're exposed to these viruses, which ultimately resulted in your cancer. So you can say, yes, there is an infective etiology, but no, you don't get these cancers from sitting next to somebody with the cancer, from touching somebody with the cancer. That's not true. And then the the sugar is a huge myth that needs to be debunked. Every single one of our patients believes, and without fail, that actually um, you shouldn't be eating any sugar uh, because sugar feeds cancer. And simplistically speaking, I mean, I remember from, I can't remember, second year or third year uh, medicine, they did this whole Krebs cycle thing. <laughs> and then they did how much energy you make from your different things, right, from protein, from carbohydrates, and from fat, right? The truth of the matter is that if you look at energy formation and our cells needs energy to live, to to do all those things it does from a day-to-day basis, your best bang for your buck is sugar, right? So carbohydrates provided the largest number of ATPs. So it's been a cheap and a good fuel for cells. Now, remember, the cancer cell is no different to the normal cell. So up to now, there is no selective way of depriving a cancer cell of energy. So there's no proof that if you don't have sugar and if you have fats and protein as the basis of your diet, that that cancer won't be able to live. We know for a fact that that's not true. So it's a myth. It's a myth that says, if I don't eat sugar, my cancer cells are going to die. Indeed, the cancer cell is smarter than the normal cell. It can take energy from any food source you, you choose to imbibe. So, you know, it's all of these things is, will sugar feed your cancer? Yes, but sugar feeds every cell. So it's like saying we should stop oxygen supply because if we had no oxygen supply, the cancer cells would die. Well, hello, we would too. You see, and that's how it simplistically needs to be told to patients often. Professor Krauss, would you agree? So, I mean, I think what people want 
a reason. And so, you know, looking to family is looking to a reason. Looking to sugar is looking to a reason. Because in honesty, we don't really understand what causes cancer most of the time. But I think it's really hard for people who've been diagnosed with a serious disease to go, you know, could have happened to anyone. This was a random thing. Um, and I, I mean, I see it from a genetic point of view where we'll talk a little bit later probably about the genetics, but where there's a genetic predisposition. And as Devin says, people turn their lives upside down in terms of their diet and what they're exposed to in attempt to reduce their risk, which is really very hard to do when there's an underlying genetic predisposition. And probably even when there isn't, you know, the the factors that cause cancer are so diverse um, in the environment, we we can't really control them to a large degree, you know, barring the few perhaps very specifics like smoking or things like that, which are obviously risk factors. Yeah, in terms of risk factors, yeah. there are a whole lot we can do. Yeah. So number one, you know, nobody should be smoking. Yeah. Because that's been proven to be carcinogenic. Right? So that's one thing every single education program should be designed to sort out. Okay, that's there. Number two, alcohol. Right, So alcohol needs to be consumed in moderation. That means not more than a unit a day. A unit means, uh, what, 250 of, of wine maximum, not more than a single of a spirit a day. At those levels, yes, it's medicinal. But when you're having more than that, then you predispose yourself to other malignancies. For instance, if you drink too much, um, you all the alcohol can be converted in your body into estrogen, which is not good for women with breast cancer. So it's never just don't do this. If we vaccinate young women and indeed young boys, we could virtually make a eradicate in many instances mm. human papillomavirus disease etiologies. That must be in large amount, many of the head and neck cancers, many of the anal cancers, almost all of the cervical cancers. So there are things we can do, but they're not easy things. Okay. Whereas people want a simple solution. One we can say, just do this and I'll be fine. Unfortunately, life is not like that. I'm sitting here and, and, and I'm thinking about people that have this um, thinking that, Oh, well, I'm going to continue drinking. I'm going to continue uh, smoking because I've heard of so-and-so who had a very, who led a um, healthy lifestyle and they were running two marathons a year and they were doing everything according to book and they still got cancer. So we should all be focusing on prevention for health and wellness at any stage of life. We have this all the time. You know, when we speak to our patients, no, no, my my grandmother is 95 and she still smokes a pack mm-hmm. of cigarettes mm-hmm. a day. Your grandmother's lucky. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But also having said that, the flip side of it is that the point is, as you said, the, the truth is we don't, we don't really know what is the event that causes a cancer. So, and it's not just about cancer. You know, not smoking, you know, lowers your risk of cardiovascular disease. So, 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 so I think that it would be a reasonable thing to do not to smoke. Uh, regardless of your cancer, whether you're going to get cancer or not, you know, not to be overweight because apart from the fact that obesity is linked to uh, colon cancer and breast cancer, index diagnosis and recurrence, obesity leads to a risk of heart attacks and strokes and, and so forth. So I think that patients also need to own their health. 
and and own their their risks and not to say that they're doing it because of one two three. They're doing it for longevity, for um for for, for reducing the other risk factor apart from from cancer. But that being said, we can then say that those things prevent cancer. They don't. They reduce the risk of being diagnosed with the cancer. But the reality is that with all that, we all have patients who are super fit who have still been diagnosed. Because as Professor Cross has said, the cancer is very complex and the risk factors are, are, are quite uh, complex. So it's not just one thing. But I think at the end of the day, patients need to own their risks and, and own their decisions about it. And remember, a risk factor is merely something that predisposes you to getting a disease. It does not mean if you have this, you will get True. cancer. There's only one thing that predisposes you to cancer, and that's life. <laughs> if you live, you can get a cancer. Sure. <laughs> Sobering. <laughs> Excuse the pun, because you mentioned the fact that you need to limit your alcohol intake, right? Mm-hmm. You need to be sober. <laughs> a- absolutely. It's a sobering thought indeed. <laughs> Professor Krauss, what does it mean to have a genetic predisposition to cancer? Really, what it does mean is that you have one significant risk factor that perhaps is much more overriding than many of these others. So, as as we've said, most cancers we don't think have a one single um, genetic risk factor, but there are a number of people um, who do have a single genetic risk factor. And again, I think that it's a predisposition, but it's a much stronger predisposition than perhaps we've been talking about in terms of diet or any of those things for the most part. So the difficulty with that genetic predisposition is it's a really strong predisposition. And so that certainly doesn't mean you can eat what you like, drink what you like, and smoke what you like, because those factors will impact on it. But it also doesn't mean that if you have a healthy lifestyle and don't smoke and don't drink, that you can override that strong genetic risk. So um, perhaps to go back and say that mostly that strong genetic risk is a genetic fault in one of these growth regulator genes. So um, both Devin and Kay were talking about most cancers having unregulated growth. And the way that they have unregulated growth is that they gather, a cell gathers through its lifetime of being exposed to risk factors, genetic faults. And those genetic faults, if you like, are the things that dysregulate growth. So we all acquire those as we go through life. As Devin said, mostly the cells with those die or don't progress to a cancer. But every now and again, one of those becomes I can't remember the word Devin used, but an overridingly strong cell that sort of takes over and becomes cancerous. If we go back to the genetics, if you have an inherited genetic fault, it means that you have one of these faults in one of your growth regulatory genes, but in every cell of your body, every billion, one of your billion cells of your body, rather than just in an a single cell that happened to happen by chance. So you're walking around with a significant predisposition. That also isn't absolutely clear because if you think about the fact that you're born and have inherited this genetic predisposition from your parents in every single cell of your body, that still doesn't answer why, for instance, if you have a fault in a BRCA gene, you're much more likely to get breast or ovarian cancer and are very unlikely to say get lung cancer, 
even though those cells all have the same predisposition. So again, how the environment influences that is really unclear. But what we do know is if you have those inherited predispositions, you have risks. And again, it varies depending on the genetic fault and which gene we're talking about, somewhere between probably a 40 and a 80 or even a 100% lifetime risk of getting a particular cancer. So, you know, even in the same family, one person might develop cancer and somebody else might not. And again, that thing of looking through your family is important. But if you don't have a family history, it may be because there's been somebody who's had the predisposition and has been lucky and not developed cancer. It may have started for the first time in you or, you know, they're just, you just might not know your family history. I think one of the things, again, going back to people who come from areas where healthcare was poor, traditionally, where cancer has all sorts of emotive issues attached to it, people don't know what their relatives died of. They know a relative was sick and died. They know a relative went to hospital and didn't come home. But they don't know that that relative had a tumor or what the diagnosis was. And so getting good family history is really often quite challenging. I'm glad you mentioned family history because, I mean, when you look at somebody who's been adopted and there are no files to access, Mm -hmm. I mean, do you then go and screen for breast cancer, cervical cancer? Where do you draw the line? So, so I think in general, in terms of looking for inherited causes of cancer or genetic causes of cancer, there are some pointers that make us more concerned that a particular cancer is inherited or genetic as opposed to one that has just been acquired as a sporadic cancer. So some of the things we look at, and again, there are no absolute rules. So you may have none of these and still have an inherited cancer, or you may have all of those, and we might still not find your cancer. But typically we look for clustering of cancer in family, so more cancer in a family than the average. So cancer is a common disease, approximately, and maybe the oncologist should answer this question, but I always quote about one in three people will develop cancer in their lifetime. So it's not an uncommon disease. So we need to look at things that stand out, like younger than average age of onset, Cancer, if you have a bilateral organ like breasts, both sides, not just one side, two cancers in the same person, um, you know, a family history of the same kinds of cancer or what we call related cancers. So, again, those aren't necessarily intuitive to people, to lay people, what related cancers are. But, for instance, breast and ovarian cancer are related cancers and from a genetic point of view may have a common cause, even though they are sort of different cancers. So there are a lot of pointers that we would use to try and distinguish the small percentage, not more than 5 to 10% of people who have a genetic predisposition to cancer from the 85, 95% of people who develop cancer where we really don't understand the cause. So you know, you mentioned having a test. Testing is not the place to start. Assessment and risk assessment is far more the place to start than just doing a random test to see if this is genetic and coming back with a, a difficult-to-interpret laboratory result. And while I still have you on genetic predisposition, what is genetic counselling? 
Okay, so um, genetic counselors and medical geneticists are people who are specifically trained in assessing family history um, and and sort of beyond that going and, and looking at what is the appropriate testing on an, a very individualized basis. So it, it's perhaps easier to say what happens in a genetic counseling session in that if somebody came to us and said, are you at risk of or am I at risk of having an inherited cancer? What we would do is, as a first point of call, I guess, is we would do a very detailed family history. So that normally means asking people about three generations of their family history and asking detailed questions about what people died of, um, how long they lived, etc. And on the basis of that, doing a, a risk assessment to, to see whether we think that is more than the average, less than the average. Um, and there are calculations you can do to kind of attach a number to that risk. Importantly, and again to emphasize, histology, looking at the tissue, looking at the, di- the exact diagnosis is very important. So people often say, you know, my mom had a breast cancer. When you go back and look at it, it was a benign breast lump. And that is not a family history of breast cancer. So it's very important that we are very specific and as specific as we can be as to exactly what those those diagnoses are in the family so that we can do an accurate risk assessment. Um, so that is all done by a genetic counselor who's been trained and experienced in looking at the different cancers, which cancers go together, whether we would think that this is high, moderate, average risk of familial cancer. And on the basis of that, sometimes offering appropriate testing that would help us to support that risk or not. So in terms of testing, there are many different genetic tests available to try and determine inherited risk of cancer. Um, they are not easy tests to do, and they there is a broad range of tests. So there is not just one gene that predisposes to cancer. We know of perhaps 80, 90, um, and they're probably an equal number that we don't yet know about. So, you know, determining what test we should do and then interpreting the result when it, when it comes back are all part of what a genetic counselor should do together with dealing with the family and the emotions around a diagnosis of cancer in a family, the fact that if it is genetic, that it has implications not only for the person with cancer themselves, but for their relatives. So one of the important implications – when we talk about sporadic cancer, if a cancer is sporadic, the risk to other family relatives is probably minimally increased. Whereas if it's a genetic cancer, the risk to, to relatives is highly increased. So, you know, a, a sibling or a child of somebody with an inherited cancer is likely to have an up to 50% risk of inheriting that predisposition, which is a really high risk. And so managing the secrets in families, managing the stigma around cancer, sharing information are part of what a genetic counselor would do in conveying and helping a family to sort of deal with the the risk of this and the sort of scary risk of cancer, I guess, in a family. Apart from then sort of going the next step, which is talking about prevention um, so or and prediction. So, as I said, first-degree relatives have a 50% risk. That means there's 50% who are anxious but who, with an appropriate test, may be relieved of their anxiety if they test negative. So 
we know that doctors and patients all overestimate their risk. We often ask families before they come in, what do you think your risk is of cancer? And they all say 80%, 90%, 100%, when in fact, genetically, it's never higher than 50%. So, you know, there is a reassurance for 50% of family, of family members, but there is obviously those who are at high risk who then need to be managed and actively monitored so that we can detect cancer early. We can do risk-reducing surgery if that's an appropriate option. So the options are, are different for every individual. There may be... Um, medical options as well, but those have to be individualized. I'm glad you mentioned the medical options because you also have scenarios where somebody knows that they are a carrier, for example, of the BRCA uh, gene. Should they then think differently about having kids? Nobody should ever counsel anybody against having kids. What they should do is provide that individual with risks and options, and they should make informed choices as to what is appropriate for them. So, you know, there are ways of preventing that gene being passed on, um, if that is somebody's choice. But once we know that a child is at risk, and typically we wouldn't in fact test children. So, you know, in a scenario where you have an adult diagnosed with an inherited cancer, we wouldn't test their children to see if they're at risk until they are of an age when they can make their own informed decisions. So we feel that it would be imposing or a removing choice from that child as to whether they want to know. Because, again, many people want to know whether they're at risk, but many people don't want to know whether they're at risk. And we we don't want to make those decisions for them. Because, I mean, a, a perfect example, something that a lot of people can relate uh, to is uh, the case of Angelina Jolie. Mm. Who had the, who, who was a carrier of the BRCA gene. And I mean, she opted for the prophylactic uh, mastectomy. Yeah. Um, some people uh, uh, opt for the hysterectomy procedures. Yeah. What are your comments on, 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 on that? Well, I think all of that fits under the basket of prevention. Mm. Okay. So she wanted to, with what she did, prevent herself from getting cancer. Okay. Now, the only reason she could do that is because she had a higher risk because of her germline mutation. So she had a genetic, a predisposed genetic risk that said, if I removed my breasts, I could prevent myself from being one of those women that got breast cancer. Now, bear in mind that prevention is not 100%, mm. right? It reduces her risk and prevents her from doing that. Much like all those things about healthy living we were discussing, right, that says this might prevent you from getting cancer, right? So that fits under prevention. All these other programs we have, screening programs, that means early detection that doesn't prevent you from getting cancer. So one of the things Angelina Jolie did was to do a bilateral mastectomy because her mother was BRCA positive, she is BRCA positive, and she thinks that her risk, and the figures quoted in the newspapers were inordinately high. So I thought, we'll leave that for the moment. What do we know? CNN knows much better than we know. <laughs> so those risks were actually what? huge yeah. Yeah. For, for no particular reason. But that being aside, she felt that whatever the risks her geneticist quoted her for her chances of getting breast cancer were too high for her. So she did a bilateral mastectomy, which is number one, personal choice. And number two, should be an informed decision. Mm. 
And please note, she didn't have this done before she had children. Mm-hmm. She's got an entire brood. So for her, this is not a difficult thing from that perspective. Yeah. And number two, the rest of her so-called female bits, like her ovaries. uterus mm-hmm. and her ovary, she did mention even when she was questioned that that would be the next step in her preventing herself from getting those malignancies. So it will mm-hmm. be something she's probably done already or in the process yeah. mm-hmm. of having done. Now, again, that needs to be an informed decision. She needs to speak to a geneticist that tells him, this is what you have, this is your risk, and therefore these are the things you can do mm-hmm. to drop your risk. Mm-hmm. And then you as the person, you would make mm-hmm. that risk. You would make mm-hmm. the decision based on that risk. I think the key thing is also to uh, to add to just what Devin is saying, to say that there are options. So it doesn't mean that everyone who's diagnosed with a particular mutation necessarily has to go and have their breast removed. Some patients may choose, uh, which is not incorrect, to do a different way of screening. Mm-hmm. For example, to do an MRI of the breast rather than a mammogram, um, which gives a lot more detail about the breast tissues and can potentially pick up earlier uh, disease. Because I think there is a misconception that the bilateral mastectomy will prevent one from getting breast cancer, which is which is not so. And also just to explain that the rationale for removing ovaries and uterus would be that that mutation does put the patient at a heightened risk of uh, uh, getting uh, ovarian cancer. But for example, there are pills that the patient could choose to go on to lower the risk of breast cancer, which has been shown to significantly reduce that risk. But because of the side effects of those medications, that has not really taken off. Um, you know, women haven't rushed out to go and get hormonal blockade because of, of the side effects. But there are options. And I think the key thing is that those options need to be discussed with the patient and not to paint the picture that there, there is really one option to to this and, and one way to approach it. Very important. Yeah. One size doesn't fit mm-hmm. all. Yeah. Okay, this needs to be an informed consent process. Mm. And a personalized process. Mm. So, you know, very op- very often you would discuss with a woman planning to have her children before, she, even if she was planning to have an ophorectomy. I mean, we're not going to do it before she's had her children. Mm. Um, obviously, timing it with the risks attached to it. Mm. Um and again, maybe to emphasize that, say for ovarian cancer, one of the difficulties is that the screening that Dr. Moodley spoke about is very difficult. So we know that we, that screening for ovarian cancer is not a very effective process. Ovarian cancer can be a very aggressive cancer. And so those are the kind of things that a woman who's at high risk would need to weigh up versus fairly significant surgery, which not only obviously ends her childbearing, but remember that ovaries and hormones are rather important for general health. And so, again, it goes to, you know, we're not just managing one genetic fault and Mm. fixing it or removing it or removing the at-risk organ, but by doing so, you're putting a woman into premature menopause and all the complications Mm. related to that. So it has to be a personalized decision for that woman at that time based on her age and her life circumstance. And people make different decisions and they're all appropriate for them. So now, say we have a diagnosis. What can patients expect from the treatment or management process? Sometimes patients are not going to have chemotherapy. Sometimes patients are not going to have radiation. Sometimes patients are not going to have surgery, which is often the first thing they have. So again, 
it is a complex solution to a mm. complex problem. Mm. So when the person is first diagnosed with a malignancy, they have a consultation with hopefully a good doctor, right? <laughs> and that doctor will then tell them, okay, this is your diagnosis. This is your stage of disease. This is your risk for all of those following things happening. Here are your treatment options. And your treatment options may be all, it may be some, it may be a combination of one or two. So it's never a situation where you're going to have to have chemotherapy. Even if I suggest to a patient you must have chemotherapy, they may still decide, I don't want this. And they may still live a long and fruitful life. So at the end of the day, again, you need to confirm with the patient, okay, this is what you've been diagnosed with. This is how I think you should be treated. These are the different treatment modalities. And they all serve a different function. For instance, surgery and radiation is largely a local modality. What do I mean by that? They only attend to the problem way to curse, right? So you can't radiate the entire body, okay? That is not, uh, largely not commensurate with a long and well-lived life, okay? So chemotherapy, hormonal therapies, they are more systemic therapies. What do I mean by that? You take them intravenously or you swallow a pill and it goes around your entire body, okay? So there are different treatment options that need to be assessed by the doctor and the patient governed by what their stage of disease is, what the correct treatment is, and always what patient preferences are. I also think that is helped by patients preparing for the consultation. I think it's important for patients to come as much as possible prepared for the consult so they can ask the right questions to the doctor. Um, because I often say to patients, this is not like a pneumonia. You know, if you have a pneumonia and in casualty, we, the only question we ask is if you are allergic to penicillin. That's it. And then we can give you an antibiotic. Because we know that in a few days you'll be better, you'll go home. And this is different. This is a discussion. And that takes into account the oncologist's um, expertise, the diagnosis, but also patient beliefs and patient's preferences. And so if patients are unprepared for the consultation and they have not thought about this, they have not try to read a little bit, but bring the questions to the doctor. Then they cannot ask the right questions. And and, and so that, then that becomes a problematic. So I think taking all that Devon said into account from the patient's perspective, what patients can do is to at least try to be prepared and to bring someone else to the consultation so that they can at least after that be able to go home and reflect about it. Because making a decision on the treatment is never an emergency. It's not urgent to decide on the day what you're going to do. In fact, if anything, if you have some queries and you are not 100% certain, you've got more than enough time also to seek a second opinion. Um, patients think that doctors will get upset that you get it. There's no need for that. And we certainly don't get upset if patients um, want to get a second opinion. Patients must be comfortable because the, the journey of cancer is a long one. And so patients need to feel 100% comfortable with the care that, that they're getting and the person and the center that they're getting it from. So so I think um, I would say that they need to come prepared and they also need to know that it's not urgent. They have time to reflect on it and to get opinions and to be comfortable. Just to add a few things there. Number one, if a patient ever comes to a doctor 
and they need to have treatment the next day, run. Yeah. <laughs> run. Simple as that. Simple Unless as it's that. spinal cord compression. Yeah, or you have an acute leukemia. <laughs> yeah, then I, maybe. Maybe. Yeah. But even then, you never start patients the next day for all the mm. stuff we do. Mm. It's never one consultation and all sorted mm. out. Never. Because whenever we give them options, there has to be questions from those options that mm. we're given. So hardly ever can I remember one consultation next to one treatment. Okay. So that's the first thing. So we give them information. They go back and more often than not, they come back and there's another big discussion. And the second discussion is often longer than the first one. Because as a rule, when you present patients with a diagnosis of the big C, they stop listening. Everything you say after that is purely white noise. So they need time, they need people to help them, they need to process all of this. And then they come back with their questions and then you go through that and you try and help them through this journey. And Kio's perfectly right. The cancer journey is a long one. And the longer the journey is, the better you are doing. Do not be confused. The cancer journey is never a chup-chup, done, sorted, I'm home now and I'm cured. If anybody who is in this line of work tells a patient they are cured, it's another one. They are usually lying. Because <laughs> what we have is as far as we can see, your cancer is no longer visible. Okay? Cure, I tell my patients, rightly or wrongly, cure means when you die and I do an autopsy, I find no cancer. Hmm. Yeah, so okay. that's that's the harsh reality of what yeah. it means, because for many diseases, patients recur 10 years later, 15 mm. years later, and then you say, but doctor, I thought you said I'm cured. Uh, well, you know, it can come back. So for breast cancer, for example, there's on the survival curve, there's a thing that says 5% of women will recur. 5, 10, 15, 20 years later. So you can't ever tell a breast cancer patient you cured. You can tell her you're fine. It is very unlikely that you'll ever get back your disease. But we will keep an eye on you once a year just to keep you in the loop. Okay. So it's an important thing that you communicate mm. to patients. Of course, none of them want to hear that. Mm. They all want to hear I'm fine. So they will go to any doctor that tells True. them that. True. Right? Mm. And it's not necessarily and I think maybe the other part of that is obviously people sit in oncology clinics and talk to each other. And the fact that you have a thing called breast cancer or ovarian cancer doesn't mean that you've got the same disease as the person sitting next to you. So, you know, I, even on a genetic level, I, I had a patient last week or the week before coming and saying, you did the wrong test. And I said, why? And she said, well, she spoke to somebody who had this test. And I said, well, yes, that was the right test for them, but not the right test for you. So I think sort of you, patients have to take ownership of their own disease and know that although it's the same, it's said to be the same disease, every patient gets managed and treated differently, whether we're talking about diagnosis, prognosis, treatment, genetics, it has to be individualized for them. I'm glad you mentioned patient empowerment because that can also 
help you in the journey against cancer and also prepare you and prepare the loved ones in order for them to give you the right support? Because that's also very important, right? Yes, I, I think, in fact, that speaks to what Devin was saying, because if we are not if we are not honest with the patient, then we have to sort of balance honesty and, and, and abruptness. So we have to be honest, but also keep them hopeful. Um, if, if we sugarcoat everything and tell them they are cured, we're actually not doing anybody a favor because then it's a short-term gain, but in the longer term, they cannot plan. They cannot get their family um, to get the necessary support they, that they need. And so it comes back to empowerment with the correct information because not only does it help them to journey through the cancer, it helps the family to know uh, what's happening and to tailor expectations accordingly with the problem. Where do you draw the line as patients? I mean, I know, Dr. Tabani, you've just mentioned the fact that at times you might come across as being, you know, giving too much of the hard truths or the stats or the trends. So as as, as specialists, where, where do you draw the line between telling me what the journey ahead entails, but also giving me hope to a certain degree? I think you have to read the patient. You. She doesn't have that problem. She's very good at it. So she goes slowly and she tells them things properly. I'm the one that tells them exactly how it is up front. Okay? Because I find it's an easier way to live. If I don't lie to a patient, I never have to remember what I told them. Okay? But that's just a personal thing. And you're perfectly right. The, the most difficult thing is to be able to get this patient to understand exactly what the real expectations are without taking away their hope, Mm. okay? And that is actually where the art of medicine comes in, as opposed to the science. And again, what she said is very important. You have to be able to read your patient, Mm. okay? There's a simple psychological study that shows that more than 60% of patients don't want to know what's wrong with them. They don't want to know the intricate details. They just want to know that they'll be fine. So in more than half my patients, I actually don't have to say a thing. But you can't do that because it's a journey that you're hopefully taking together. So you actually have to drag those people that don't want to know with you and give them enough information that they can make responsible decisions Mm -hmm. or what you think in your worldview is a responsible decision Mm -hmm. for them without telling them you're not going to live long. So it's a very difficult decision. And those patients like the doctors that tell them things they want to hear. Mm. But that also, may not necessarily yeah. be yeah. in their best yeah. interest. Yeah. I also think it's, a, it's, it, you can tell someone anything, but I also think it's important how you say it and when you say it. For example, like Devin said, in the first consult, that's not the day to tell someone they're going to die. The, the, the timing is just wrong. They're shocked <laughs> and that's not the day. But you'll find in subsequent visits, as they start to understand this more, as they start to ask more questions, then you can then say, you know, this is this is not going to go well. This is what you need to prepare. And fortunately for us, we deal with, with adults also. So one hopes that in those conversations, there is some insight. Um, if I say to you that we cannot cure this, that it is going to significantly reduce your life expectancy. Rightly or wrongly, I don't necessarily think think I have to say you're going to die. But I could say this is going to significantly reduce your life expectancy. So I'm hoping, rightly or wrongly, that you understand 
that that may mean death. So, and this is, there's no right way to do this. And each one of us develops our own style of communication. And we hope in the end that we haven't overpromised or underprepared our patients. And it's, it's a, it's, it's, it's a growing, it's an art, it's an art form and we are continuing to, to learn it ourselves. Sure. It's, it's, it, 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 it is a difficult journey. It's a difficult and very complex, uh, d- d- topic, uh, conversation around cancer, obviously. Professor Krauss, sometimes marriages and relationships mm-hmm. come under a lot of strain where it's established, uh, that a child has a cancer linked to a parent's genetics. Have you ever experienced well, that? I mean, the guilt from the parent who's carrying a particular gene? So you now raising the issue of childhood cancer as well, which is in a way a different area. Dr. Tabani just said she fortunately doesn't mostly deal with children. So obviously children also get cancer. And in fact, in childhood cancer, probably many, a greater percentage are genetic, which is almost intuitive. If you think about the fact that children haven't had the exposure to the environment that adults have, the Genetic or the, the inborn components are likely to be stronger. So the answer is many of those are inherited and many times we are dealing with a scenario where one of the parents is, has had cancer themselves or is at risk of developing cancer. So, um, they are again not easy situations to manage. It's part of our role as geneticists to manage. We don't actively manage the treatment of the child, but we obviously manage the family situation around dealing with it. And again, understanding that this has implications. So, you know, we have times when we diagnose a child with cancer where we're implicating a parent not only as the transmitter of that gene, but in fact saying you've been lucky up till now in that you haven't developed cancer yourself, but it almost dictates a surveillance program for that parent as well. So, they are difficult situations. Um, and again, it doesn't help to avoid the risk and not talk about it because in the end it's going to come back to bite us when we are not communicating that there are significant risks to other people. So again, I think we have to be honest. You know, we have to say this is what it is. Cancer or uh, tumors that are due to genetic risks are no different from other genetic diseases where Again, many of them are serious. Many of them have reduced life expectancy. It's, it's, it is a balance. I mean, parents don't, are never going to thank you for the diagnosis, but at the same time, you can't go, no, actually, there isn't a genetic disease here when you know very well that there is. So, you know, denial or these stories of sort of, you know, I went to the doctor who told me that I was never going to get this or I was going to, die by you know in the next month and look at me now are all it's about communication and we we have to communicate openly and honestly and and encourage open honest communication in families cancer puts huge strain on families and relationships Mm. as does any chronic disease um there are people around who are trained to deal with that we certainly often refer patients to psychologists when the counseling is beyond what a genetic counselor does, which is not psychological counseling. And so when we recognize that there are family dynamics or there are couple dynamics, we would make an appropriate referral. And the same would be true, I'm sure, for mm, all of my right. colleagues. So, you know, 
a, a, a multidisciplinary approach in all these scenarios. We're not always in the same room at the same time, but we certainly communicate with each other, need to communicate with each other to ensure that the patient overall, you know, has, has a, has, has a kind of comprehensive care. You know, interesting, you, you refer to this in, in a so-called pediatric scenario. Mm-hmm. I can tell you in, in adult oncology where I work, okay, um, in terms of purely married couples, the strain that the mm-hmm. diagnosis of cancer puts on that marriage mm-hmm. is phenomenal. I have not seen a marriage where there are cracks that survived the diagnosis of cancer. So this is a very, very taxing diagnosis, Mm. psychologically and sociologically, for any couple to negotiate. Mm. Say They say one of the three biggest things a a marriage has to endure is uh, changing house, um, what, moving house, Mm. um, the diagnosis of cancer. (laughs) And the death of a spouse. And the death of a spouse. Okay, and it's all in the same ballpark in terms of the sheer weight of stress that it has to endure. And it's not an easy walk in the park, given that this gen journey is in many respects a very protracted and sometimes a never-ending one. Okay, So that's part of setting the correct expectations for patients during the initial parts of your interaction. But, you know, you've spoken about a child with cancer. I mean, the other way around is if you have a parent with cancer, and obviously my perspective is a genetic one, there is potentially a risk that you've passed it on to a healthy child as well. Again, you know, I I think if it is a genetic form of cancer, there's no point in that child not knowing or at least ensuring that somebody in the family knows that this is genetic and passes it on. And that the appropriate testing is done before that parent dies. So, you know, one of the critical things in genetic testing is knowing what to test for. So if you have a parent who has a terminal disease, again, a very difficult discussion to have. But if there is a test required, or even if that person doesn't want to test for their own, it's really important that we have a sample, a blood sample, from that person banked so that when their younger children want to know about their genetic risk in the future, then we have the correct sample available from the affected individual to test them and ascertain that risk. Obviously, that's not something we would do for everybody, but it's a situation that we often have to deal with of raising the the fact that this this person is not going to survive. And in order to determine risk for other family members, we need to ask for a sample when that is not the focus of where the family is at at any particular at a particular time, but it's an important thing to do because otherwise you miss an opportunity that is something you can't easily go back on. In truth, in that scenario, we hardly ever have hassles no. from the patient. No, we don't. Never. It's about no. awareness in the doctors actually yeah. mm. to to have that conversation yeah. with the family and the patient. Yeah. They all never they have agree. a hassle with yeah. it. Yeah, no. never. Yeah. Even if they're taking their last gasp, Absolutely. they never have no, a hassle with no. it because they, they understand They understand, yeah. and they've usually transitioned in their awareness mm-hmm. of where they are and what they're trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. So for them, their family and their children are tantamount yeah. at that point. So yeah. we never have hassles. 
it's usually the clinician's fault at that point if this has not been done. Mm. And it's about awareness. And sometimes the family who feels something of a resistance to, you know, kind of raising the reason for doing it. But, but I agree with Devin. I mean, it's, it's, it's something that needs that the clinicians are the ones who yeah. should be making the, yes. the, the point of call and going, we really need to we do really this. Need this. And we don't have hassles when you do. No. no. Dr. Damane, earlier on you mentioned the importance of yeah. patience for them to be informed. I think you reiterate, reiterated that a number of times. And I know a lot of specialists and doctors hate Dr. Google. What resources are there yeah. that you would recommend yeah. for people to access? Okay, so firstly, I, I often say to my patients, I think it's very um, tempting to Google. I mean, I, I, I also Google. I had uh, my firstborn when he was 11 months and he wasn't, um, he wasn't crawling. I Googled 11 months not crawling. I didn't call a pediatrician friend. I Googled. So I think it's, it's quick and it's a quick fix. But I say to the patients, bring the Google concerns to me. Let's discuss them. Because you say people mustn't Google, they will. Everybody does it, okay? But let's bring the concerns to the consultation and let's talk about them. Because Google assumes that you've got a background. So if you don't have a background understanding, you can't interpret what you're reading. So bring it to the doctors, bring it to your oncologist. Let's put it in the right context for you. Okay, so that's the one thing. The next is that I often say to the patients, and they can go um, onto onto websites and that that um, the two sites that I usually refer patients to that's got good patient information, that's got reliable patient information. It cancer cancer.net and cancer.gov. Um, cause that's got a patient section that speaks to staging, that speaks to treatments that we're giving, why we are doing it, and so forth. And often after the consultation, when you've discussed those things, it's the best time to go. Because then it's things we've already discussed that's just going to reinforce what we've already uh, spoken about. What um, I would discourage patients from doing is to Google and then make their decisions to say, the doctor said, but in fact, Google says this and so forth, um, and I'm not going to do it. And the other thing I want to caution patients about is chat rooms, chatting about the cancer. Because people who have had treatments and they're back to work and they're living and traveling and running are not in a chat room talking about how terrible this is. So already you've selected negative feedback. Because people who are well are not there. They are out there living their lives, raising their kids, working, traveling, running their businesses. So chat rooms already select for negative feedback, which is not what the patient will need at that point in time. Of course, there are support groups. That, uh, there are a lot of support groups where, where we are uh, operating, where people can plug into other um, survivors, other people having treatments, and talk to those people um, within a controlled environment. Dr. Moodley, is there anything you would like to add? I think information's a two-edged sword. The information you get may be right or incorrect. And I tell people, if you want to look at the Internet, you must understand the Internet is like a the door of a public lavatory. Whoever's sitting there has got nothing to do, has written something on. So the information you get is as good or as bad as the person who put it on. There is no filter on the Internet. You can land up Googling one thing. Try it tonight. Google anything you want to and tell me three hours later which site you're at and what are you reading. Because I guarantee you it's not what you Googled anymore. And you found out some herb in northwest Mexico that fixes everything, including ingrown toenails. Mm. And that's where you land up. 
So you need to remember from where it comes. So there are credible sites and there are incredible sites. So you need to stay away from the incredible sites because there's a simple, simple truth. If was there, if there was any one simple solution to fix cancers, we would be out of a job. Okay. If there was anything out there that says, if I do this, I'll be cured. None of us would be working. You wouldn't even need to do the podcast because the incidence of cancers would be null. And it's not like that, despite all the herbs and the hocus-pocus stuff that gets sold. Where? On the internet. And at a price. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I th- uh, yeah, I think, think mm. these guys have said it all. But there are reputable sites, but there are lots of spaces mm. where you just – yeah, the the extreme stories, and I always say that to patients. I, you know, it's exactly that. You have to you have to balance it. You have to make sure that you're getting correct information. Mm. Google is fantastic. We all use mm. Google, but but you do need to know what you're doing and where you're looking for information. So patients should not be shy for you know about taking a notepad to Brilliant. their doctor Absolutely. and no going Absolutely. through each and every concern and question. Yeah. But mm. confirm it with a credible source, mm. not your neighbor. Yeah. Okay? And certainly mm. not the internet. <laughs> you're paying your doctor for their expertise. Absolutely. Use mm. it. If you don't like it, find another doctor mm. who can give you the expertise you need. Mm. But certainly don't pay a doctor for their expertise and then elect to take your expertise from somebody or some source that you have no idea of his credibility. No, cancer is complex. I would definitely would Very. not want to take my questions to my neighbor unless they are an oncologist, obviously. <laughs> You'd be surprised. <laughs> Professor Krauss. Dr. Mudley, Dr. Tabani, thank you so much for educating and enlightening us today. Thank you. Thank you for inviting us. Today's discussion has brought excellent understanding to a complex question. What is cancer? And we've kicked off our 10-part oncology podcast series. You can access all 10 conversations at discovery.co.za forward slash corporate forward slash podcasts. In our next episode, we will bring two clinical specialists into studio to take us through the cancer journey, all brought to you by Discovery. This is CliffCentral.com.